this morning we're going to be reading out of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to begin uh, by reading in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Our second reading will be from the Gospel of John, chapter 3. You'll find that on page 887. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Ron. Morning, church. Let's pray together here as we... Get ready to look to God's word. Father, you have revealed some 
profound things in these words. Uh, there are some really fascinating connections happening here across the centuries, some dots connected in the story of your redemption that I think are stunning upon further review, God. We pray, though, that you, as you need to do, God, that you would give us eyes to see these things for the spiritual significance they have. More importantly, we pray not only that we would see them, but we would be changed by them. God, would you show us the kind of eternal spiritual life that Jesus was born to give? And would you help us to cling to it all the more by faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Carl mentioned, it's been an incredible week. Uh, had a wedding last night, so we're so excited for the Bergs. And really also very excited for Zach and Kelly Starnes, who just had their first baby boy, Samson Starnes. That is quite a name. That's a great name. I think anybody would envy that name, Samson Starnes. Uh, there is something about a baby that has this way of waking us up to the miracle of life. As adults, I think we sort of take our life for granted. We kind of settle into some sort of rhythm that we just keep plugging away at with work and family and friends. It starts to kind of all feel very predictable, maybe even constant, as if our life is it's just a given. It's all we know. There's nothing really that special about it. We rarely stop and realize, wait a minute, we have life. We're, we're alive. And we didn't just do that either. It rarely dawns on us. We rarely think about this. But when a child is born into this world and we can see her, we can hold her for the first time, in that moment, the wonder of life is, is very hard to miss. I'm the youngest child, and so I never got to experience the birth of a younger sibling. Uh, but I remember when my oldest sister had her daughter, Lana, her first child, uh, she was the first one born into this new next generation of our family. And I remember leaving the hospital after that first time I met her there and just thinking, that was a profound experience. My family had always just been my family for all of my life. Our life had always just been our life. I don't know, right? And then all of a sudden I walk into this hospital room and there is another one of us that I had, had never met, right? How does this life thing just happen like that? Where does new life come from? Uh, why does something as miraculous as a life have to end? And is there any hope that we might live forever? Throughout our series in Advent, we've been asking this question, what child is this? Who exactly is this Jesus whose arrival, whose birth we celebrate each year at Christmas? In other words, how did that life happen? Where, where, where did that life come from? What does that life mean for us? That's what the series is about. And to address that question, each week we have been looking at an Old Testament passage long before the birth of Christ that, that is meant to somehow point us forward to Christ. In some way, it anticipates or at least foreshadows the coming of a future Messiah. 
And then we fast forward to the New Testament to find another passage which confirms, yes, Jesus is in fact that Messiah. And the goal of this series, you've probably noticed, is not just to show us a number of predictions of Christ's birth. Some of these passages have very little to do, if anything, with Christ's birth. The goal instead is to show us just how many passages are fulfilled in Christ in so many different ways so that we begin to understand just how monumental his birth really was. All the facets of God's redemptive plan and story that came bursting into this world the day that he was born. In our case today, for example, we're going to look at a a fairly obscure passage in the Old Testament. God sends fiery serpents to bite and kill his wayward people. And then to fix this, he tells Moses to put a serpent on a pole so that those who look to it will live. Now, the truth is, no one would have read this and thought, oh, yeah, that's about a coming Messiah, clearly. But then we're going to see that when Jesus came, when he was here in the flesh, he, in fact, is the one who's told us. You remember that story? Those serpents in the wilderness, that story way back then was ultimately about me. He's going to tell us, just like that bronze serpent, I was born to be lifted up so that those who look to me might live. This is what we're going to see. Uh, But first, I want to look at part one. This life-giving, lifted-up child is foreshadowed. Here, I want to turn with me, if you would, to Numbers 21. He is foreshadowed. I want you to notice most of the other sermons we've done throughout this series, even over the last few years, have all been promised. The so-and-so child is promised and then provided. Here, there, he's not promised. There is no promise of a Messiah in this story, but there is a faint shadow of him that we're going to see. So look with me at Numbers. Numbers is the fourth book in the Pentateuch, which is just made up of the first five books of the Bible. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, number four, and then Deuteronomy. And the book is called Numbers because in the very beginning of the book, the author counts the tribes of Israel in a way like like a census. Uh, But some have said that a better name for this book, and actually it's been known in Jewish history by the name of In the Wilderness or The Wilderness, Uh, Because that is the period of Israel's history that this book actually recounts. We're looking at a time after Israel was delivered out of slavery in Egypt, after God let the Red Sea part so that they could walk through it, uh, but before they make it and to conquer the promised land. Remember, though, uh, for that reason, this is the generation that was so faithless that God will have them wander in the wilderness for 40 years so that all of them can die off rather than making it to the promised land themselves. These are the ones who got so impatient when Moses left to go to Mount Sinai and to receive the law that they took all their gold, they melted it down, they fashioned it into a cow, and they started worshiping that cow. Okay, this is not the A-team of the Old Testament, we'll just say. Throughout this book, anytime these Israelites complain, which they often do, they usually preface their complaint with this same snarky question, which is more or less, why have you led us out of Egypt? 
right? They say it a number of times throughout the book. And of course, the irony of this question is that, if you'll remember, they were enslaved in Egypt. They want to go back. They think it's better. And Moses didn't just lead them out, by the way. Again, God miraculously delivered them out of slavery for his good purposes, even to the tune of parting a sea so that they could walk through it. So in all their complaining, we are supposed to see this profound sense of ingratitude and entitlement, which brings us to our passage today in Numbers 21. As they are wandering around the wilderness, the author tells us right away that the Israelites became impatient. And then look with me, if you would, at verse 5. It says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I want you to notice, first they said there's no food and no water, and then they say we loathe this worthless I thought there was no food, Right? There's something interesting going on there. Earlier in the Pentateuch, all the way back to Exodus chapter 16, when the Israelites actually were starving in the wilderness, God miraculously provided them with manna from heaven. Manna is just a very simple kind of bread. This was presumably what they had been eating all along to survive in the wilderness. And so it's not that there was no food. It's that they were not satisfied with the heavenly food that God was miraculously providing for them so that they did not die. That was the food here that they are calling worthless, by the way. And so just in this short little paragraph, we can see the Israelites were impatient, they were grumbling, they were ungrateful, and they were entitled. But most importantly, all of these things are ultimately a reflection of the fact that they were not taking God at his word. He had promised to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt, and he had. He had promised to bring them into the promised land. That's kind of the point, and he was. But they did not see or appreciate the spiritual significance of this. Instead, they were consumed by their own earthly desires for more comfort than God was giving them at that time, and even just tastier food. And God's response is, is very interesting. As a judgment, he sends fiery serpents among the people, and it says they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, I just want to zoom out a little bit and remember, again, there was a certain serpent in this story early on in the story back. If you'll remember Genesis chapter 3, and so this should not be lost on us. Serpent should probably signal and remind us of that. Uh, they're not good, we'll just say. Uh, this serpent is the one who lied and deceived Adam and Eve, created this whole mess that ultimately the story of the Bible is about fixing. And then here it says, if God is sending these fiery satanic serpents almost to bite and kill his people, it's pretty intense. Uh, and he's clearly pretty fed up with the Israelites. But then look at how they respond. Look at verse 17. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Pray that this whole thing would be over. Let's, we're fine. The man is good. You know, we're good. Can you take the serpents away? But I want you to notice God doesn't actually take them away, does he? It's very interesting. Look what he says 
in verse 8, he says, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. You see this? So they ask for the serpents to be taken away. And God says, no, actually, make another one and put it on a pole. And then to be saved, make them look at it. Make them look at the very thing that I have used to judge them. Make them look at this crystal clear reminder of their sinful lack of faith. Make them look at that. And then in looking at that, they can be saved. I have to admit, this is a very strange story. Uh, To be honest, I think the Israelites probably would have felt this way as well in their own history, as many of them look back on it and read it themselves. They wondered maybe, what is the point of this story? Why is this story in our Bibles? Well, little did they know, in a way, this story about the serpent in the wilderness is, is pointing us forward ever so subtly to something much bigger but it would only be later, and I mean much, much later, that Jesus would finally come, that he would be born a child, that he would grow up to be a man so that he could tell us that this strange story about the serpents in the wilderness is ultimately about him, which is what I want us to see next in part two. The life-giving, lifted-up child is fulfilled. He's here to tell us that he's here in John chapter 3. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of the Old Testament, the story of the Bible in general here, we are fast-forwarding somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,400 years now from the time of that story in the wilderness to the time of Christ's life here on earth. And in this story, a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And he visits him in the night because, as John tells us, he was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews, and Jesus at the time was a very controversial figure. And so Nicodemus would not have wanted to be seen with Jesus, so he goes by night. But when he sees Jesus, he sort of tips his hand a little bit, even on behalf of all the Pharisees, the the council that he's a part of. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So it seems Nicodemus is trying to build some kind of a rapport with Jesus, maybe even trying to calm some of the tensions that were existing between the rulers of Israel and Jesus in his life and ministry. But in response, Jesus doesn't even address what Nicodemus says here. I love that. He just kind of drops this huge bomb. Jesus says something so out there, it just turns this whole conversation in a new direction. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this begins a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus all about life. Different kinds of life. They're all both kind of trying to get at to understand one another. From here, they kind of go back and forth a few times. And Nicodemus first basically says, well, wait, wait, wait. Are you talking about grown men getting in their mother's wombs? And Jesus says, no, no, I'm not. I think you've misunderstood. You're not getting it. I'm talking about spiritual birth. 
And he compares this spiritual life that he's talking about to the wind. He explains, you can feel the wind, you can hear the wind, but you, you can't necessarily see the wind or know exactly where it's going to twist or turn or go. That is kind of what this life I'm talking about is like. It's very different. But by this point, Jesus has clearly totally lost Nicodemus. And, and, and Nicodemus just responds. He says, how can these things be? Right? He doesn't believe. As Jesus says, he doesn't receive this testimony. And so Jesus laments that even a ruler of his chosen nation doesn't understand these basic, basic things that he was born into this world to accomplish. And as the Jews should have really been waiting for and longing for for so long. But then Jesus basically starts to defend his right to teach on this new, invisible, heavenly, spiritual life. And this is where I want us to really focus in here. If you look with me at verse 13, Jesus says this. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. In other words, you're not going to find, Nicodemus, another human teacher who's qualified to teach you about this spiritual heavenly life because I am the only human teacher who has actually dwelt there. I've actually dwelt in heaven. He's saying, listen, Nicodemus, before I was born a human child here on earth, all I had was invisible spiritual life in heaven. And I had it eternally, and I had it in abundance, but I took on human flesh. I descended from heaven. I'm the only one to be born here on earth with a physical human life so that you can have this invisible life of heaven that I have always had and the one that I am talking about now. It's incredible. (laughs) No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Then in verse 14, Jesus continues. He gets right to the point. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's saying that's the kind of life you need to enter the kingdom, and that is how I am going to give it to you. I'm going to be lifted up like the serpent. Jesus is trying to give Nicodemus a peek under the hood here to see this is how that spiritual heavenly life actually works. And in a sense, it works just like the story we read from Numbers 21 about Moses and the bronze serpent. He, Jesus, is going to be lifted up, much like that serpent was lifted up on a pole. Now, it's fairly clear, most agree, that this certainly refers to the crucifixion of Christ when he was lifted up on a cross to die. Some also believe that it refers to his resurrection when he was lifted up out of the grave. And also his ascension, when he was lifted up to heaven. I think the safest bet is to assume that this has all three of those in view. He is referring to the great exaltation of himself in the gospel. He is talking about his triumphant exaltation in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. In doing all of that, Jesus will become a symbol of the sin that is causing our death. Much like that serpent was a symbol of God's judgment for Israel's sin. And those who look to him in faith 
to be healed and believe in him will gain eternal life. The life that he's talking with Nicodemus about here. Much like the Israelites who lived when they saw that bronze serpent lifted up. And so for Jesus, like the serpent, this will mean being lifted up. It'll mean his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But for us, for us, much like the Israelites, this will mean confessing our sin. It will mean looking to this life-giving, lifted-up Son of Man that we might live. And not just to keep living for a time before we die, but to be born again to an all-new kind of eternal, invisible, heavenly life that only Christ can give. But this is what I want us to see. Why is that? Why can only Christ give us this life? It's because no one else has ascended to heaven except he who has also descended. So what is this Old Testament story about a bronze life-giving serpent? What does it tell us about the birth of Christ? I hope it's obvious. It tells us that Jesus was born so that we can be born again. Jesus was born in a physical human body. The God of all creation and the second person, his son of the Trinity, took on human flesh so that we can take on his eternal heavenly life. He descended from heaven. He was born with a physical body to be lifted up like that bronze serpent so that those who look to him might live. Before I turn to application here first, I want to address a pretty big problem uh, that these verses might elicit in, in some of us, and that is namely that many people just are not convinced that there is actually any such thing as eternal life. Many are not. Uh, in our modern world that really values empirical, provable, observable science, the default assumption in many ways is that what we see here is all there is. And, and if there is anything uh, beyond all of this, then we can't really be sure of it at all. Maybe this is you today. Uh, when you read about these fiery serpents, maybe you just kind of chuckle. <laughs> well, that's silly, right? As you read of Christ teaching about eternal life, maybe you, like Nicodemus, respond by just saying, come on, how can these things be? Well, first I want to point out that Christ himself has said here that this entire whole concept of eternal life is dependent on our believing in him, which, of course, we will never do unless we take a passage like this one seriously. And ultimately, it wasn't this Nicodemus' problem, right? He was so sure and so convinced of what he knew that he just wasn't open to this kind of heavenly spiritual life. And so I think in a way it would be foolish for me to try and appeal to all these different arguments, earthly arguments, to convince you that this is worth taking seriously. My goal instead is just to preach these texts, believing that the power of God is found in these texts and to pray that God would use these texts to show you this life. That's my goal today. But I also want to press in on you just a little bit more. I don't want to let you off the hook that easily. The truth is you may not know what to make of Jesus' claims here, and that's fine, but I am convinced of one thing. You have experienced the wonder of life. You have, at least in part. You've loved people. You've probably lost people. 
You long for things. You derive, I'm sure, great joy from life. And as much as our modern world may help us to make sense of how this life works in the flesh, you have to admit it does nothing to help us with our deepest and most pressing questions. Nothing. At the end of the day, for example, even with all the many great advances that we have made in the modern world, we all still face this prospect of death. And it is certain. And if you are even just kind of honest about it, that is incredibly unsettling. So I want to ask, have you really drawn those beliefs you have out to their final conclusion? Have you traced them down the line? Do you realize what lies ahead for you if this is all there is? Have you come to grips with this? Are you prepared for that? Rather than considering all the things you would need to disbelieve in order to take this passage seriously, I want you to try instead to just suspend your disbelief, even if it's just for another 10, 15 minutes here, and to take these passages at face value and to seriously consider them. I want to encourage you this Advent to at least begin considering if eternal life is found in this child. Could it be that he was born, in fact, to give you a whole new kind of life? And so that said, let's apply these passages now. I want to consider three questions that these passages beg for us and then I think answer for us. Three questions and the answers these passages give us. The first question is this. Why don't we have eternal life? Why don't we have it? In other words, why do we die to begin with? And the answer to that according to these passages, is that in our sin, we do not believe in God. In our sin, we do not believe in God. Now, that word believe does not just mean to think that something exists in the same way that people sometimes believe that aliens or Bigfoot exist. It's not the same concept. Um, to believe in this way means to depend on or to rely on something or someone else. So, for example, when we need a surgery, we don't want just anyone to do the surgery. Uh, we want a surgeon we can believe in, right? Which means someone we can be fairly confident can actually help us. We want to find someone we can believe in, and then we want to kind of let them do their thing. We want to place ourselves in their hands, trust them to do it. And so another way to say this is that in our sin, we don't think God can be trusted in this way. We do not rely on him or take him at his word. Instead, we, like the Israelites, we tend to grumble and we go our own way in life. We're very much like the Israelites whom God faithfully protected and cared for at every turn. And even though he raised them up out of nothing, and even though he promised to bless them and to bring them into his sacred place, the promised land, they just wanted some tastier food, right? We are consumed by our earthly desires, and we're often apathetic to the heavenly purposes of God, which is why, according to the scriptures, we do not have life. Because man lives not by bread alone, not even by the manna he gives from heaven, but by every word that comes from his mouth. We, we reject that word. We don't receive his testimony. 
and so we don't live forever. If we want to know, church, what keeps us from this life, all we need to do is to pay attention to our grumbling. In what areas of our lives do we have virtually no control, and yet we grumble and worry our way through it as if we don't know the sovereign God and creator of all things, as if he can't be trusted with our deepest, greatest needs, as if he won't prove faithful in the end, as if we, of all people, could do a better job orchestrating all of creation than he can. This Christmas, if we're tempted toward this kind of faithless grumbling, let's remember what we've seen today in these passages. Let's remember in the back of our minds This is why we will die one day. Our lack of faith, it's not just unwise. It's an insidious spiritual disease, church. It keeps us from life. It brings us death. And so when the pressures of this life begin to mount and bear down on us, or when our deepest longings and expectations go unmet, or when we have to wait for some important new development in our life that's just not coming fast enough, Let's remember, our grumbling never comes from a place of faith and trust in God. It always comes from a sinful heart that is reluctant to trust in him. We will never find lasting eternal life if we live in that direction. It will only lead us to death, which leads to our next question. Where does eternal life come from? And in this case, the answer is the one who descended from heaven. This child, uh, he descended from heaven to bring us this life, in fact. Just two chapters before this, in the introduction to John's gospel, here's what John says about Jesus. He says, right in the introduction, he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. We're going to actually look at that phrase more on Friday during our Christmas Eve service. But today, I just want you to see that John has already said in this gospel that life itself is found in Jesus. That doesn't just mean that he has life in him like we all do. It means that life itself was in him, like all of it in him. Right after our passage today, John continues to write uh, what is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, John 3.16. Very next verse, he says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is where that life is found. Later in chapter 11 of John's gospel, Jesus himself will say, I am the resurrection and the life. Then, if we would remember, at the very end of the story, of course, he dies and then comes back to life to live forever, for all of eternity. Church, the entire story of Jesus is nothing less than the story of life itself. When he was born that day, the eternal Son of God descended from heaven to bring a whole new kind of life into this world that has not been seen in this world since before the fall. Christmas is the story of God's eternal heavenly life breaking into our world. So when we long for this kind of life, is Christ the one we look to? Better yet, do we even long for this kind of life? Or does it just seem like a distant, happy thought to us? Could it be 
that we are expecting too little from Jesus? Could it be that we only look to Jesus for an example of how to live or as a source of encouragement and strength in this earthly life in the flesh, for instance, when in fact he was born to offer us something far greater and far more, to offer us eternal heavenly life. Is that what we come to Jesus looking for? Is that what we want and expect from him most of all? Church, what we need more than anything is is a high and exalted view of this heavenly lifted up Jesus. We need what Paul has told us in in the letter to the Colossians. What we need is to seek the things that are above, he says, where Christ is. This is where this child is now. He is there in heaven. He is at the right hand, seated at the right hand of God. What we need, church, is to set our minds then on the things that are above, not, not on things that are on earth, because that is where eternal life comes from. It comes from the one who descended from heaven so that we could be born again and who reigns there now in heaven, high and exalted and lifted up. Now, in one sense, I think we have probably the opposite problem that the Israelites had in the wilderness. It's not that we lack what we need for a comfortable, fulfilling life in the flesh. Uh, That is not why we tend to grumble. Many of us have so much that we can't even see past our comfortable, fulfilling life in the flesh. It's easy for us to sort of settle for this life here and now because in many ways, it's it's so good. In many ways, it it feels on a day-to-day basis like we have all that we need, but as a result, we tend to live as though we already have eternal life, but we simply have it in the things of this world, and that cannot be, and that will prove not to be true. Our entertainment, our self-image, our health and wellness, our success at work, all of it. Too often, I rest even in these things thinking, I, I don't Don't worry, I'm not enslaved to these things. And yet, meanwhile, they dominate my thought life and consume my time and attention. While this life-giving lifted up Jesus too often gets precious little of, of either. And I wonder why I lack spiritual vitality. And I wonder why I'm stressed and so worried, right? It's because the life I am chasing can only be found in the one who descended from heaven. In him is life. He is the life that we need. And so naturally, next, let's consider this final question. How do we gain this eternal life? How do we gain it? And the answer is by looking to Christ in faith, by looking to the one who was lifted up. In the same way that these Israelites looked to that bronze serpent and lived, so we need to look to this lifted up son of man to gain eternal life. In the same way that their bronze serpent was a symbol of their sin and their judgment, so the cross of Christ is a symbol of the sin and judgment that we deserve. And in the same way that Israel had to confess their sins before they ever would look to that serpent and live, so we need to confess our sin. We need to admit our need for this life-giving lifted up child. And in the same way, 
that these Israelites looked to that serpent and found life in the face of death, so will we find life, church. Eternal life when we look to Christ in faith. When we stop our grumbling, we take him at his word, and we simply rest in him. Church, when Jesus was born, the promise of eternal life became real for the very first time. His birth here on earth is what opened the door even to the new heavenly birth that Jesus is talking about in the eternal life that it brings. And so when we feel like the Israelites, sort of trudging through the wilderness with nothing to eat but some simple bread, when we are not sure where our next breath will come from or if it will even come at all, let's look to this life-giving, lifted-up Jesus who was born in human flesh so that we could be born to eternal life. Let's look, church, to this exalted Son of Man and live forever.